Our primary reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the Lord's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you. I just want to say thank you again for the warm welcome and the invitation uh, to come back. That means a lot to me. And I especially want to bring greetings to you from the employees, the board, the clients, and the guests of Star Gospel Mission where we are celebrating our 119th year in ministry here in Charleston, South Carolina. I have the privilege, friends, of uh, serving people at their worst moment. And we have confidence at Star Gospel Mission that a person's worst moment is not the sum of their life. We thank God for that. On something slightly related, I would like to speak with you this morning about Ubuntu and compassion and the way that lays into the church and the way that we interact, re react, and the way that we act in the larger world. There is an old, old story about a rabbi who had a conversation with the Lord about heaven and hell. I will show you hell if you want to see it, said the Lord. Come with me. He then led the rabbi into a room containing a group of famished and desperate people. And they were sitting around a large circular table. And in the center of that table was an enormous pot of stew, which contained more than enough for everyone to eat. The smell of the stew was delicious. It made the rabbi's mouth water, yet no one ate. Because each person at the table held a very long-handled spoon, long enough to reach the pot in the center of the table and scoop up the stew, but too long to get the food into their own mouth. The rabbi watched the folks trying to maneuver the spoons into their own mouth, and he watched the stew as it spilled and wasted on the table, and he bowed his head with compassion over their, their misery. For those who had a resource, but they were wasting it, and as a result, were wasting away. Now I will show you heaven, said the Lord. And they entered another room. It was exactly the same as the first. The same large round table, the same delicious pot of stew in the middle of the table, the same long-handled spoons. Yet there was joy in the air. There was celebration. Everyone appeared well-nourished and exuberant. The rabbi could not 
understand. And he looked to the Lord for an explanation of what was happening. It's simple, said the Lord, but it requires a certain ability, you see. The people in this room have learned with their long-handled spoons to feed one another. Among the most important gifts given to the human race is that of empathy. The dictionary defines empathy as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Psychological literature says that the term empathy was coined over 100 years ago and comes from the German word Einfühlung. And today, there are at least 43 distinct scientific definitions of empathy. There are similar terms to empathy like mempathy, which is the act of imitating another person's feelings without actually experiencing those feelings. There is, of course, sympathy, which means feeling for the other person. But empathy means feeling together with the other person. And it's interesting to me that empathy is defined in reference and in research as not a trait It's not something that you're necessarily born with, but it is an ability. Empathy is what a social scientist would call a competency, and it's connected to the gospel uh, of Jesus. For those of us who follow him, we should be cultivating, building, developing empathy. We should be radiating and cultivating empathy because it's what the master both commanded and modeled for us. Jesus was once asked what he considered to be the most important command in the entire book. He replied with the capital command for human beings is that, first of all, they need to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, all their souls, all their minds, and their strength. Satisfied with his answer, His inquirers were prepared to answer, uh, they were prepared to ask their next question when Jesus footnoted his answer by saying that, well, what? The second is just like the first, that people love their neighbors as themselves. Now, when one reads the Gospels and becomes familiar with the life and times and the movements of Jesus the Nazarene, it's difficult to miss his preference for the poor and marginalized populations in the region of Galilee where he lived and worked. And with that in mind, it's also worth remembering that Jesus was born not into a palace, but into relative poverty. And as such, a case can be made that Jesus' preference for the poor and marginalized marginalized was birthed out of his own experience. His empathy for others may be informed by the fact that his family endured persecution because of his ethnicity, his age, and his gender. Didn't Herod seek to destroy all little Jewish boys under the age of two? Maybe his earliest memories have been of living in Egypt as a refugee in a community of immigrants. He spoke the Jewish language with an Egyptian accent, perhaps. Or as a young itinerant carpenter, he was asked, Rabbi, where do you live? And Jesus answered, nowhere really. Now with those kind of things in mind, it's no wonder that all throughout Jesus' ministry, he had a preference for the poor, the destitute, the marginalized, It makes sense that his answer concerning the greatest law referenced empathy or the ability to love one's neighbor as themselves. But empathy stands in contrast to apathy, which is defined as a lack of concern. Not my problem. You should get yourself out of it. How did you end up there in the first place? not mine to solve, I don't care, apathy. And if 
empathy is an ability, then my South Carolina trailer park logic says that apathy is a disability. Perhaps even a disability for which modern society has made far too many unreasonable accommodations. And I submit to you today the theory that perhaps Jesus commanded his followers to incorporate the unincorporated out of empathy, welcoming the sinner out of empathy, caring for the sick out of empathy, out of empathy, out of empathy, loving the outsider out of empathy. Now, I've been a little alarmed lately that out of what seems to be a defensive posture, the term empathy has become um, associated with a drift from perceived biblical values or that empathy is some kind of weakness even among Jesus followers or public servants. They, They might say that empathy is too emotional a term and that those who allow for empathy short-circuit their logic and render themselves useless as a citizen. Well, I think Paul, the Turkish apostle, dunked on that concept about 2,000 years ago in his letter to Jesus' followers in Rome, a very popular passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 12, we didn't read this one, but verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. He went on, Paul. Look, look with me at verses 9 through 18. He, he says uh, so, many, so many things here, and I, I don't have it here uh, on, on the screen, but I'm going to read right from the Bible. How about that? It says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to that which is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but this is what I love. This is what I love. In verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Do not be conceited. Do you hear that word, the emphasis on with? I love that word with. And when we use that term with, we describe relations between two living, sentient beings. It suggests something about the character of God. The one who gave himself a name, he shall be called Emmanuel, for he is God with us. So God often uses that word when he, when he describes his positioning and his proximity to us. To Abraham, for instance, God said, do not be afraid for I am with you and I will bless you. To, uh, to Joshua, God said, they will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. To Isaiah, God said, don't be afraid for I am with you. Do not be discouraged for I am your God. Through Jeremiah, God said, they will fight you, but they will fail for I am with you. I will take care of you. And just as the resurrected Jesus was leaving the earth, he said to his first followers, be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those words, with you, means something so important to me. Early in my life, some neurological and emotional switch was flipped in my brain to make me feel like I was alone. And the more I look over my life and see clearly, I realize that much of my acting out as a teenager and as a young adult had to do with the sensation of being alone or the fear of being abandoned. As a child, as a teenager, I entertained the thought that if people were to discover who I really am, they would leave me, they would abandon me, and I would be alone. I thought as a young person that most of the people in my life, whether they were family or friends, they really didn't love me, love me, they just simply tolerated me. And those were the notions that I was projecting onto a holy God. In my heart of hearts, I truly believed that I was one of, if not God's very 
least favorite. But I was able to enter a community of people who modeled Emmanuel, God with us. They modeled empathy. And though I was at the time still very much engaged in ongoing overt misbehavior, they chose to walk with me, to love me, to show me God's favor. And that taught me something about the character of God. The way that they loved me helped me to see the kingdom and to build a longing in my heart. And most importantly, that faith community that discipled me taught me these words from Deuteronomy chapter 31. The Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Hallelujah. And somehow those words have become a part of my inward belief and my outward behavior. If I had to state my entire theology in the simplest of terms, I would say that I believe Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And there's no person in this entire world that he refuses to be with. Now, that makes me wonder what life should be like among followers of Jesus. What are the distinctives of the ecclesia, those who gather for nurture, those who scatter for mission, those who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbors as themselves? How should this look? Those who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and had a steadfast love for sinners, understanding that they too were born into sin and undeserving, and they have a God who chooses to walk with them. Well, a few years ago, I was given a book that deals with the, uh, the African principle of Ubuntu, a concept associated with communicating, caring, and showing compassion to neighbors. Ubuntu is a Zulu and Xhosa term that means I am because you are. Now, there are some forms of this concept in different cultures around the world. For instance, and this one might sound familiar to you, the term ohana in Hawaiian culture means what? Family. Thank you, Lilo and Stitch. It refers to those to whom we are connected by blood plasma or just by proximity. Ohana, like Ubuntu, emphasizes that as humans, individual people must learn to be courteous, cooperative, and considerate, even empathetic. In Jerusalem, an ancient Jewish scholar by the name of Hillel taught the basics of the golden rule, saying, that which is hateful to you, don't do it to your neighbor. Simple stuff. In early Rome, the statesman and philosopher Cicero wrote, we do not live for ourselves alone. Our friends have a share in us. And when asked by religious scholars, what is the most important kingdom principle Jesus answered, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are made for togetherness. Humanity is made for family, for fellowship, to exist in a tender network of interdependence. Ubuntu, I am because you are. To me, that strikes me as a theological statement, a kind of community imperative for believers. After all, whenever I hear the words, I am, deep associations with the person and proclamations of Jesus are triggered in my heart and in my mind. I am because you are. And so let me just say this. Here's the hot take part. Before the crusaders perceive a threat and run after and vilify and discount the term Ubuntu as some kind of worldly notion and not based on the teachings of the Bible, before panic sets in and the concept of Ubuntu becomes another boogeyman for believers, before Ubuntu is discounted as some kind of leftist, Marxist, African social science theory, it's not necessarily useful, perhaps even dangerous to the church, before Ubuntu is seen as a different religion that's incompatible with Christianity, I I would love to take a moment to point out how Ubuntu has applications to our lives as believers. 
Archbishop Desmond Tutu in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, says, a person with Ubuntu is open, available to others, affirming of others, does not feel threatened that others are able and good based on a proper self-assurance that comes from knowing that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is personally diminished when other people are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed. Now, when I consider Tutu's words here, I can't help but think of that passage from Romans Paul had written to the church as a kind of heads up, first of all, a heads up that he intended to stop by his, uh, to stop by Rome on his way to Spain. Indeed, he mentions that letter. He mentions that in his letter exactly what he was doing as he wrote it. He says in verse 25, I am on my way to Jerusalem. And if you know your Bible history, you understand that he was on a mission to advocate for the Gentiles. He was on a mission of inclusion, many of whom were in the audience to whom he was writing in Rome. Rome at the time was the New York City of the world. In those days, it was the seat of economic power and provided the greatest strategic opportunity to win the world for Jesus. Moreover, the church was very strong. Paul said in uh, Romans chapter one, verse eight, your faith is being reported all over the world. It's believed that the people who planted the church at Rome were the same ones among the visitors in Acts chapter 2 who were present at Pentecost. And the church in the city of Rome was also a deep church. That's why the entire book is like a theological treatise. In other Pauline epistles, he writes to them basically saying, get your act together. He's addressing misbehavior or errant belief systems. But in his letter to the Romans, he was writing to make sure they understood God's intention for the world and for them. And by the time we get to Romans chapter 12, Paul has laid out the way of salvation. He's explicated the role of the spirit. He's grieved over Israel. He has encouraged and exhorted his readers. And now he urges them, do not be like the world. Have a different mindset. And in so doing, understand and display the will of God. He urges them in uh, in verse 10, be devoted to one another in love, to honor another above yourselves. That word devoted in the Greek is philostorgai, which is a kind of perfect family love. When we understand the love of God for us, when we accept that we have been adopted by him and that he is with us, then we have the responsibility of displaying courtesy and compassion and empathy for others. In Philippians chapter 2, that same writer, Paul the Apostle, writing to the church at Philippi, challenges believers to do nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Looking not only into your own interests, but also into the interests of others. Does that now sound familiar to you? Sounds like love your neighbor as you love yourself. And our willingness to do this can lead to reconciliation. When I know you are willing to walk with me in spite of your difference from me, in spite of my flaws, you would choose to be with me. It makes me more willing to listen to your message. Listen, in this generation, empathy is evangelism. And in that sense, Jesus' imperative, the concept of Ubuntu, is the act of assuming responsibility for justice for others. It's, it's allowing yourself to feel personally diminished when the image of God in another person is diminished for any reason at all. One writer says that Ubuntu is a choice for restorative justice. Restorative justice aims not at punishment, but at the, at the redress and restoration of balance being knocked askew. It's justice in its broadest sense. It's a collective corporate justice for all and not just for some Ubuntu. I am because you are. In verse 12, Paul urges the early church to share with people who are in need. He says, practice hospitality. 
Verse 13, he clarifies what he means, and he, he says this means identifying and empathizing with those in need. The early church understood that if somebody in their community was lacking, then as part of that community, they also were lacking. I am because you are. Now, I remember when I was very young, I was invited to be a social worker at the Salvation Army during Christmas time. I was 12 or 13 years old, and I was spoiled rotten. My granny got me anything that I ever wanted. I was, it was during Christmas break, and I just assumed that I was going to stay all day and just play you know, Nintendo, uh, shooting ducks on the screen and playing uh, Super Mario. But I was taken down to the Salvation Army uh, right down the street here. It was at 88 Simmons Street, and I was placed in charge of welcoming all of the people who came to the Salvation Army and helping them sign up for boxes of food or clothes or toys. And there was a line out of the door, and I remember several people that day because my interaction with them stirred compassion in my heart. For instance, there was a man who came in wanting a box of food. He didn't smell that good. His clothes were dirty. And my extensive social work training told me that I needed to ask for his name and address. And he whispered to me, a 13-year-old social services professional, that he slept under the bridge. And that was my introduction to extreme poverty. And I remember how that interaction haunted me. When I was in my warm bed and uh, comfortable that night, I imagined laying on the ground, looking up at the the support beams of a bridge That never left me. I believe that practicing hospitality is doing more than just doling out bags of groceries, but a willingness to walk with those in need, or at least imagine yourself in someone else's shoes, identifying with them as a human and resisting the urge to view them as the other. It's realizing that, but for the grace of God, that would have been me. Therefore, if I'm going to be and if I'm going to practice the love of God, if I'm going to be and practice the the concept of Ubuntu, I need to understand the responsibilities that come with my connectedness to other human beings. I am because you are. In verse 15, Paul urges his readers, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. In my young adulthood, I've learned a little something about mourning. No one really prepares you for the loss of a parent or a grandparent or a friend or the loss of a child or the loss of an ideal. That's not in the young adult handbook. But I've come to appreciate the process of grief and the necessity of mourning Grief and mourning are a gift to us. It's healthy for our hearts and our heads. But in our culture, not only do we cut off grief, but we have the tendency to ignore the grief of others before even hearing them out. I can think of two examples in this era connected to the division caused by politics and racialized misunderstanding. First of all, not long ago, I was contacted by an elderly woman who was probably one of the sweetest souls on earth that I know. And she was in grief because a new idea had been presented to her, and that idea went against everything she had known or believed in her nearly 70 years. You see, she had been taught that to be colorblind was a virtue. And I could hear her heart breaking over the phone as she mentioned to me that she had said to someone that she was colorblind to a younger person, and you know what they said, that's racist. (laughs) And that accusation collided with another idea that she had known or believed in 70 years, that colorblindness was racism. She didn't understand that. She had believed that racism was always an intentional, overt, hurtful action. And so she was in deep grief, knowing in her heart that she was not racist, but being accused of racism. Well, what would you do in that situation? The temptation might be to explain the terminology, but the better choice would be to identify with, to empathize with her in her pain, to grieve with her. 
to weep with her because that is the imperative of scripture and the concept of Ubuntu. I am because you are. Another instance that comes to mind that has replayed itself over and over again in my life, especially since 2016, is the pushback received to any assertion that black lives matter. I'm not talking about the organization, but the lament statement, the grief statement, black lives matter. That, that grief statement predates any website or any organization that has been found and the knee-jerk and conditioned response and reaction of so many of my dear friends is to be triggered with anger at the notion. But what if we reviewed that statement, especially when coming from a brother or sister in Christ, as a lament, a kind of grieving, a kind of mourning? I think it might prepare us to listen empathetically And if the entire church, especially in the West, would capture this concept, I believe that we would see greater justice in the world if we were to practice I am because you are. Can you imagine if in a small town, pastors of white, conservative, evangelical denominations were listening to their Christian brothers and sisters of African heritage when they say that they are often victimized by law enforcement? If for just a moment they listened without defense and believed the report they are hearing from their brothers and sisters in Christ, can you imagine if those conservative evangelical congregations were to visit the sheriff's office in a small southern town and say, Sheriff, we appreciate what you do and you know we support you. And in fact, many of us voted for you. But we have some questions based on what our sister churches from across the tracks are saying. They're saying that their young men are stopped and searched and harassed 80% more than others. And they have the receipt and the science and the details to prove it. And we would like you to give this some serious attention. Because when they weep, we weep. Chances are in a scenario like that, the sheriff is going to listen Because in a a conservative small town, politicians know who put them in office. And so I believe that Paul's strong instruction can be understood as an admonition right here to our culture. That when someone is in pain, no matter how different they are from you, you don't have the option to feel anything other than pain with them. How long is your spoon? What are you doing with it? The most important scriptural principle is to love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. And the concept of Ubuntu is the assertion of the responsibilities that come with commonly held humanity. It's understanding how to apply that long-handled spoon across the table of humanity no matter what. It's understanding that love must be sincere, that believers should be devoted to one another in love, that if somebody else is hungry, then I need to feel hunger with them until they are no longer hungry. Or if somebody is marginalized or minoritized, I need to enter that space with them until they experience justice or welcome. I could go on with several examples today, but I think you get the picture. I am because you are. And without you, I can't be who I'm supposed to be. In closing today, I want to share this passage of Father Gregory Boyle's Tattoos on the Heart. To me, it is a beautiful picture of what repentant kingdom people living in revival can create in a fractured world like ours. He says this, no daylight to separate us, only kinship, inching ourselves closer to creating a community of kinship such that God might recognize it. Soon, we imagine with God this circle of compassion 
Then we imagine no one standing outside of that circle, moving ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves will be erased. We stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless at the edges. We join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. With that in your hearts and in your minds, would you bow your heads with me?
seat has come. All right. If caring for our neighbors and community is an obligation, when does that obligation end? When we are glorified, when, when we end our life. Like it is, it's not like you, you get a grade for uh, caring and then you, you pass the class and you move on. Um, I believe that it is a life call uh, for believers, followers of Jesus up until the moment uh, we join him in heaven and we, we celebrate in community with others who have done the same. How would you find the balance between sharing and empathy with somebody's grief, especially the older lady that you talked about, her grief of losing that ideal, and maybe also challenging biases that she and others might be blind to? Yeah, that, that is a great question. Um, if you don't mind me answering in... Um, a kind of way that's narrative. Um, I think that the easiest answer is love, okay? Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, my, my grandfather, whom I last, lost last year, um, is, he was uh, born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. I have uh, two grandfathers, um, one who was a black man, one who was a white man. And I lived with uh, my grandfather, Marion, who raised me. And he had a lot of um, old ways about him being, you know, living in Ravenel, South Carolina, and a lot of the old biases. And sometimes he would say things that would strike me as like, I was like, oh, my God, Papa, don't say that to anyone, okay? Don't. But you know what? I loved him. I loved him so much. I loved him so much. And whenever I had the opportunity to gently instruct him and help him to see, like I did that out of love. It wasn't out of irritation. And so when you, when you hear someone saying something that like grates against everything you know, like we have the ability as humans to, to like stop ourselves and say, you know what? I want to love this person before I respond in the anger of my spirit. Say, you know what? Before anything else, like I love this person. I am because they are. Literally, if you're your grandfather, but, <laughs> but from an Ubuntu perspective, or loving your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't say whether your neighbor is right or wrong. It's just loving your neighbor as yourself loving your neighbor as yourself. And so if somebody is saying something and you, you just know the direction you're going and social media has hyped you up and you're ready to present with them with the facts and set them straight, love them first. Do no harm and then walk with them as they grow in their understanding of why that's hurtful. Does that help? Yeah, and I think sometimes it's a lot easier to love your neighbor than your family. So, well done for <laughs> stopping yourself. All right, last it's one. I hope my family's not watching this. Um, <laughs> do you have any suggestions for daily practices that help strengthen our empathy muscle? Oh, man, that's good. So, um, yeah, uh, I see some, some of the staff members of uh, Star Gospel Mission and people who... Uh, worship with us at, at the mission. So we get a lot of opportunity to exercise this. I mean, we, we serve um, men who are facing homelessness and substance abuse and mental illness. And uh, those empathy muscles, man, are like in constant exercise mode. But here's what I'll say. Um, first of all, to, to dignify people as humans. Like you might see people on the side of the street and they might ask you for money or whatever, and what you, what you decide to do is fine. But to view them the way that God views them, like realizing there was a day, listen, there was a day that that person who may have a criminal record that's you know, longer than most people's resume, um, that person who is sleeping on the street and dealing with issues that we could never imagine, 
There was a day that somebody rejoiced over that person's birth. View them as someone who is precious in the eyes of God and look at them that way. And I think for, for me, um, exercising muscles of empathy involves viewing every person as someone who was rejoiced over and help them to see that people, especially God the Father, rejoices over them today. I think that works empathy into our hearts and minds. That's really beautiful. And I think it's also a lot, at least for me, it's easier to have empathy for people who I see as having less than me and so much harder for me to have empathy for people who I see have more than me. Sure. So that's what I need to work on. <laughs> but thank you so much for just your beautiful spirit and helping us to be empathetic. It's something that we all need a reminder every single day. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you. God bless you.